This week, how to feed off your crowd, uh, for public speaking, that is. And I got number eight through six. I know that doesn't make sense, but I'll explain in a moment. Of Hamilton's most haunted places to visit. Now, I don't know if this public speaking segment that I'm about to do kind of reminds you of the last one I did. If you do listen to all the shows, you're not just coming in, listening, and then taking off and coming back if the fair weather listener. But if you listen to all the shows, you might be like, okay, I'm repeating something here. Because the first public speaking segment was mingling with the crowd's energy. And this one is the energy of the crowd. They're different. And I'll get into detail on how they're different. I also have an example of a tour group that had the worst possible energy that you can absolutely imagine. Worse than the story from the previous one. I believe it was week 68, that show, on uh, public speaking, mingling with you. you. You can look it up. But this one was much worse. It was a smaller group. And it wasn't just drunk, it was verbally abusive. But I'll tell that story in a second. So let me just talk a little bit about my own uh, history with public speaking. And like everybody, I think the fear of this comes from school. And this isn't a comment on school. I don't know if there's really a way to change it. Hopefully nowadays with the focus on lowering bullying, that it might help. But I think a student such as myself, I'm very much introverted in public life. I, you know, I can turn that off for my, for my tours. I can turn that off for the podcast because this is more of a performance for me. But when it comes to social interactions, I'm very introverted. So in high school and elementary school, I was extremely introverted. And for that reason, it was extremely difficult for me. So I would rather take a failing grade than have to do a public presentation in school. I know that's changed for me today, and there's reasons for that. Just throwing myself into that fear and realizing it's something that I really love doing, such as talking to you guys. But school made it very difficult. And I think one of the main reasons were if you're more of a quiet student that you do get bothered more. And that did happen to me. So going up in front of a class when there's people in there that have made it their life's goal of torturing you over the years is something that's going to affect you. So you see their faces and I'll come to the idea of having those eyes on you in a second, but you see their faces and it creates that tension that knowing that they're, you know, looking for something to, they're looking for basically their prey, and they're looking for something that they can use against you in the future, that's that's a huge amount of tension. And some students, they can rise to that. And for those students, I know their lives are going to be great, because people can rise to that fear and get past it. You can see that they're building up this amazing character in themselves. So if there's any students listening or parents who have students who are you know, scared of going up in front of the class, you can tell them that. You know, if you can face this fear, you can face anything. Just tell them that there's there's adults out there in the business world who've done well for themselves who have this fear. And it's, if you can face it, you're going to be on a higher level than them, even at your young age. Somebody said that to me, it might have changed how I looked at it. 
Anyway, so uh, the evolutionary reason why we fear public speaking, I actually didn't know this in the beginning, and this is something that would have helped me as well if I knew it back then. It's helped me in my uh, tour guiding career today is the idea that um, we are programmed in evolution to fear the eyes of many. And the reason for this is the idea when we were prey for predators, you know, living in the forests and you see the glowing eyes in the trees. And that basically meant that you could very well be dinner that evening. So for that reason, uh, we have have this uh, programmed in our minds that if you see those many eyes staring out at you, that you should fear it and that your first action should be to run away. And we have had that ingrained in us because by running away from those staring eyes, we could live to see another day. So I had a, I had a former tour guide who was leagues better than me at what he did and he ended up being uh, it's a uh, uh, christopher rufo he ended up being a uh, kind of a mentor to me he, he you know took me under his wing and showed me certain techniques to use an amazing teacher uh, i believe he lives in los angeles now he's an american i uh, was going to mcmaster at the time so i was very happy to have him as one of the ghost guides and his mentoring was just amazing and give me many techniques that I definitely still use today. And he was the one who told me this. And, it, you know, it makes 100% sense. Because if you haven't done any public speaking, you're listening to this podcast right now. If you ever do that, you'll know what I'm talking about. And if you have done it, you know exactly what I'm talking about. So looking at that crowd in front of you, let's just say 10 to 20 people, and you're seeing those eyes staring back at you, it's uncomfortable. And it's not in the sense of making eye contact with the group because you're not really, you're kind of going from person to person. It's uncomfortable because of that evolutionary reason. It's programmed into us to fear that. So if you can know that going into the situation that these people in front of you are not predators, <laughs> hopefully they're not going to cook and eat you. <laughs> hopefully. I don't know your situation, but hopefully that's not the case. You can set that in your mind before you go into the situation, and I think that will help. I mean, the other thought of it, if you're brand new at public speaking, is to look over the group's heads. Definitely do not picture them in their underwear. That does not work. <laughs> but if you look over their heads instead of at their eyes, that can help you as well until you get that comfort of being in front of the group. But you might be thinking, okay, well, does the fear ever go away? You know, can I ever say that if I do this for 20 years, will I then never fear having crowds in front of me? And for some people, that may be the case. But actually, I'm going to say from my own personal experience, and I've been doing this for about 20 years. But for most most people, I think it's the same is the fear does not go away. Even for, like, say, stand up comedians, teachers, constantly going in front of groups, I know they're always going to have those butterflies, that little bit of nervousness sitting inside their belly. And it happens to me as well. So before you go in front of a group, you're going to fear, uh, feel that fear. It's okay to feel it. You know, you can accept that that's going to be there. And it's a good thing because fear is basically energy and you can use that. So I've gotten into the technique of uh, when I fear that nervousness building up inside of me, I'm talking to a group, I actually can push that out as energy in the story. 
So if I'm coming to the climactic part of the story, I can use that as excitement into it and create the emotion of the person being featured in that story. So the fear can be a useful tool, but even if it's not a useful tool, you need to know that the fear should never be crippling. Because when you get in front of that crowd, as long as you know in your head what you're going to say to them, as long as that speech is set quite well in your mind, no fear can stop you. Because fear's only um, problem, its only takeaway in this, is that it can create a mental block. So you always see the person in front of a crowd and they, they're very nervous and that creates the mental block and then they're like, uh, 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 they, they don't know what they're going to say next. And it's because their mind is so focused on the fear that they can't remember what their next line is. They can't remember what their next story is and they're done. So having that, that's the worst part of it. So having that for your first few tours as you're going out there and trying to circumvent that fear a little bit is just to know your material inside and out. You know, practice in the mirror. That is very useful. Or even sitting in front of your computer talking aloud, kind of like I'm doing right now. And, uh, you know, you get that feeling. You can even picture in your mind a group in front of you. And that's like a good rehearsal. And then you know your material quite well. So no matter how much fear, there's no block. So getting the idea of energy the outside energy also matters quite a bit. And this is a masterclass. You know, this is an advanced technique is to know that you need your crowd to be very energetic and to be focused on you, to trust you as a storyteller. And in turn, you can then feed off that energy and tours with a high energy like that with a few people who are really into it who are reacting to the story with their facial features, with their voice, it's a, it's night and day. So uh, when the energy is high, you can ride that. And knowing that the people are really enjoying it, those are some of my best tours. I absolutely adore that. When I have people in the group that are right into it and uh, you know the energy's high. So I don't know if you've seen in some events, you'll have a, a comedian or a performer come out and they'll be like, how is everybody tonight? And the crowd goes, yeah, we're good, whatever. And there's like, no, no, I'm not going to accept that. And they yell out, I can't hear you. How are you doing tonight? And then everybody's like, woo, we're so happy. <laughs> now, they don't just do that for fun. That is to raise the energy of the crowd, because after some time, the energy could get so low that if you come out and just start your routine, you're going to be fighting that low energy. So by coming out and doing that, I can't hear you, or they come out and do a joke to get people laughing or whatever, they've now raised the energy of the crowd and they're making it easier on themselves. So they can then feed off of that. But, you know, some crowds, it's impossible. Some crowds they've had, especially for a tourism company, such as the tours I lead, some people have had long days, they are tired, they were forced to go on the tour, they don't believe in ghosts, whatever the reason is, the energy is low. And no matter how much you try and connect with them, no matter how much you try and raise their energy with jokes and with, you know, asking, uh, how's your day and stuff like that, it just doesn't work. 
So the energy just stays that way. So there is a way to kind of combat that as well because you could have 80% of your group enjoying it, but with smaller groups, even if 20% of a smaller group is not into it, their low energy will spread to the rest and the rest will have a fear of kind of engaging with you as a guide and they'll hold back. So from your point of view, you think the entire group is against you. But I've had many of those situations at the end of that, I'll have people come up to me on the side realizing that I was having a, a maybe a little bit of a tough time and they'll tell me, no, we really enjoyed it. It was great. Uh, you know, they just, they feel bad that they didn't show a little more engagement, but the overall energy was, was pushed out. Now I'm going to give you a story to end off this segment and I'm not going to use any names, but I will tell you why the group booked. So the group booked, it was a bachelorette party. So it was about, I'm going to say 12 women. I could be wrong on that number. It was a little while ago. And now me personally, I've personally have had troubles with bachelorette parties. I I don't know the reason why I can guess. I'm not going to say what I'm guessing because it's definitely not proven. But for me, it hasn't worked. I know some of the other guides, namely uh, female guides, have had no problems at all. And I've, I've witnessed that perf- personally. And I thought it was like something wrong with me. But then I realized, okay, maybe some of the other male guides also had issues. But anyway, I digress. I don't know for sure exactly why that is. But I've taken bachelorette parties in the past. And one of the worst groups I've ever led in my history <laughs> was a bachelorette party. So like I said, about uh, 12 women. Not, not like overly drunk in any way. I think they had drank a little. Maybe six or seven of them. But... Throughout the tour, the energy was extremely low. I was trying to, you know, joke around with them, trying to bring it up, you know, with using the ghost stories, trying to make it extra spooky. I I did everything (laughs) to try and raise the energy to make everybody more engaged. But I like 90% of the people that were looking at me, they just did not seem happy with me. Like they were, they were angry and it, it really did affect my performance. So I started because they weren't reacting to any of the stories. I could tell a joke and I just hear crickets. And I, I started to get flustered. This is years ago uh, before I learned how to, to react to that. This is one of the first times that that happened to me. And I got a little bit flustered. And then at that point, a couple of the, the women in the group, they became verbally abusive. Like they were actually putting me down. Like, you know, the, making fun of what I was saying. And I, I just, I, I, was, I was taken aback. At one point, I just stopped talking. And I was like, I don't, I really didn't know what to do in that situation. So that was a complete failure for me. And at the end of it, I was just happy it was over. I actually, uh, yeah, just, just happy to get away with the situation and, and have it to be done. But it's amazing that when you're put in that very extreme low, that you can learn a lot from it. So if ever I am forced into that, I've, I have done tours for drunk people since. Uh, like I said, not, not many were drunk in that group, but drunk people also can have a very low energy in it or very hard to keep their attention. You know, learning from those humongous failures and knowing that I still survived it and a couple of days later I was totally fine, I didn't even think about it, helps you in the future. So that you know that when this situation occurs, when the energy is low, just rely on your material. 
So as long as your material is strong, then you can just continue on telling it. And, you know, if there's no reaction, there's no reaction. And just keep it in the back of your mind, too, that um, some people may be enjoying it, but they're afraid to tell you because their friends might not like you, especially in tours where everybody knows each other. So in that case, you just rely on your material. You don't need to connect energetically with that crowd. You can just kind of hold back. I talked about that in the last segment, uh, week 68, I believe it was. Now, um, when it comes to the verbal abuse or with uh, people who are very happily half in the bag, you might get some interruptions during your presentation, during your speaking, during your storytelling. And you have two choices in this situation. I'm just going to do an overview here because I actually think this could be an entire segment on how to know whether to acknowledge it or to ignore it. Now, if you're just at the starting of doing this, it's always best to ignore. Maybe pause for a second as they finish up so that they know that you heard them and that they're interrupting the group. Usually a, a, a slight pause is enough to acknowledge that and then just move on with the stories. Don't even mention it. But as you get more experience and then go down, you can actually acknowledge it. I find some people, they just that's just their personality that they don't mean anything by it. So they'll, you know, they'll interrupt the tour and then I can kind of play with that. You know, like certain interruptions can be a little bit creepy and I'll play with it and I'll be like, what? What did you say? <laughs> I said, you're scaring me. Uh, you know, something like that. Just to kind of drag them into the tour and then after that, usually they're quiet. It's not to shame them in any way and I'm not embarrassing them. People get a good kick out of it. But usually after that, they realize that they interrupted and they shouldn't do that. So if you're beginning ignore pause and then move on if you you know are more experienced down the road you'll just do it naturally where you acknowledge what was said if it's worth acknowledging otherwise it's just best to ignore anyway like i said maybe that will deserve its own segment in the future but just to sum this up i'll say in conclusion it's always best to just stay calm because people know at least nice people know nice considerate empathetic people know that if they were put in the situation that you were put in talking to crowds, which is the number one fear in the world, that they would have a difficult time with it. So that alone is the fact that you can actually go up there, stand in front of them and talk, no matter how nervous you sound, is more than many people will do ever. So keep that in the back of your mind. Nothing life-threatening. Nobody's going to cook and eat you, hopefully. And in the end, people have so much going on in their lives. When you're done, no matter how bad you screw up, they're just going to forget. They're just going to go on to the next thing and they're going to forget whatever happened. In your mind, it's going to be the worst thing in the world. But in their minds, they'll be like, who was that person again? So I mean, worst case scenario, just keep that in mind that people's memories are very short these days. And that's to your advantage. Now, I messed this up. I mentioned last week uh, doing my top 10 most haunted places, the visit in Hamilton segment. I mentioned that I was thinking of cutting out the Haida battleship. So I did. The article is actually up on the site now if you want to go read it. If you don't want to be surprised in the next few weeks that I'm doing this podcast, uh, this segment, 
go ahead and read it. Just go to ghostwalks.com. You scroll down. It'll be one of the new articles there. Top 10 haunted places to visit in Hamilton. So I changed it up uh, last week. I added the uh, height of battleship. This week uh, I've removed it. So I'm going to go from number eight to number six of the newly formatted list. And just forget everything I said about the Haida. The Haida is featured in the article. If you read it, you'll see as an honorable mention, which it's very well deserved. So coming back to the segment here, coming back to the list, I'm going to go back to number eight. And for number eight, we have Dundering Castle. Now, you would think Dundering Castle would be haunted, right? I mean, this is Hamilton's most known historic house. It is a national historic monument. It was the original home of a former prime minister of Upper Canada. It is extremely significant to the history of British Canada and, of course, to the city of Hamilton itself. But, but there's not a ton of ghost stories that come out of this place. And you might be thinking, well, why is that the case? Well, ghost stories are discouraged in Dundurn Castle. Now, I'm not going to say they're banned. Definitely not. Especially nowadays, they seem to be coming more around to the idea of ghosts. We have a special event there happening on three dates in October, which I'm very much looking forward to. They allow these groups to come in with ghosts on their mind. They will allow the groups to use pendulums as part of a makeshift investigation while they tell darker Victorian stories about death and dying inside the house. So you can tell they are definitely coming around, and I love that. I think it's amazing. That's why we do that event. But some will still state that Dundurn Castle is definitely not haunted, and I have to completely disagree with that from the sheer age of the place, from its significance in history to the amount of things that went on in and around this house since the early 1800s. I mean, that alone is going to create some serious energy. But then again, there's no way we're going to know for sure. And I can understand the hesitation of the people who run the place to not be fully associated with ghost stories because ghost stories tend to be very popular. But for some who have more of an older-fashioned thinking, for some people who don't believe in ghost stories at all, this could have a negative effect. I know times are changing, thankfully. There's certain areas of science that are finally coming around to the idea of leftover energy, which could mean the proving of existence of ghosts, because if that ever happens, I'll be, you know, super happy. I mean, it would change the way we look at this and people won't laugh at the idea of ghosts and just see it as something for Halloween. It will become a part of life. And I think that's very, very healthy. But history does support this being an energetic place. You know, the uh, Sir Alan McNabb, he was the guy who was the former prime minister and, you know, he had a very dark life and a, a very dark death and the main ghost of the house, uh, Sophia McNabb, his favorite daughter, uh, said to come back as this was her favorite time in life. She ended up being married off to royalty. She's an ancestor of Camilla Parker Bowes, who was the wife of Prince Charles. So this significance, this energy seems to surround it. 
for that reason, I would definitely consider Dundurn Castle to be one of the more haunted locations in the city. Number seven, the Steam and Technology Museum. I know a lot of you, even if you're from Hamilton, you're like, what the hell is the Steam and Technology Museum? <laughs> Go look at the article. It's a very beautiful photo that I took of it. I'm actually very proud of myself. But it is an impressive-looking structure, and it is the oldest still operational engine in all of Canada. So what does the engine do, you might ask? It, it's a pump house. So basically, it took the one-time clean water of Lake Ontario and pumped it into the city. So basically the idea was back in the uh, the olden days, so going back to the early 1800s, that the township of Barton, which would be eventually become the center part of the city of Hamilton, had a bit of an issue with cesspools. So people would drink diseased drinking water. It happened all over the world. And they would die because the water was so diseased. So this is what prompted the invention of waterworks. And today we we take it for granted, the idea that you can have water pumped right into your house through clean sources and hopefully clean pipes. But back then they didn't have that. So the diseased drinking water in the township of Barton then forced our, our city at the time to bring in this waterworks system. I don't know if it's the first one in the country, but I know it's definitely one of the first. And because of that, they built this pump house in the east end of Hamilton to show off the technology. That's why it's so beautiful. And you can see all the workings of it because then people would come from other cities and towns in the country and just to have a look at this and say, maybe we want this for our place as well. So we were a leader in the country, maybe even in the world, for this brand new technology and that's why they made it so beautiful so the original pump house for the city's waterworks system is what they converted into the steam and technology museum and you can still visit it today and as i mentioned it is still operational so what about the energy and the ghosts well for this one we had you have to dig a little bit deeper when we were there years and years ago uh, i was part of that paranormal group and we used to do uh, some monthly meetings in the in the wood house of the steam and technology museum it's where they kept the wood to run the pump now of course it just i think runs off of obviously steam so it's probably the same thing but they said they were talking about this the psychics were picking up on an energy of a little boy inside the pump house itself because we could go in and get tours whenever we wanted and they picked up the energy of this little boy in some of the crawl spaces. So you can understand that back in those days, there was very low standards of safety, combined with the fact that they were totally cool with having children doing this type of dangerous work. You know, like the old Charles Dickens stories, that's basically how it was. So it wasn't uncommon for saying, okay, this area of the engine is very tight it's a very small crawl space that an adult person couldn't get into so it's totally cool we'll just get a kid to do it it was actually part of the uh, part of the plan when you built these places so the energy of a young boy in one of these crawl spaces who had believed might have died 
by accident. I don't think there's any historical proof of this, but the energy is being picked up. So that's the haunting believed to be that young boy. But either way, if you haven't seen the Steam and Technology Museum, I highly recommend it. Just to see that uh, original engine, you can actually say you witnessed the oldest working engine in Canadian history. And finally for this week, I present to you number six, Whitehern Mansion. Now again, you might be saying to yourself, where the hell is Whitehern Mansion if you're from the city of Hamilton? And again, I will tell you, yes, this is kind of hidden. But for us, it's always been a huge location to feature because it is featured on our ghost walks of downtown Hamilton. I'm a huge fan of this house. It is stunning inside and out. It originally had a widow's walk. I wish that was still in existence, but that has since been removed because they're very expensive to keep, especially with our original Canadian winters. So it is flanked by City Hall and the YWCA. It is very hidden back there. So if you don't go back to Jackson Street, near McNabb, you'll never see it. Uh, Hidden completely by City Hall, they tore down a bunch of history to make that, uh, sorry, monstrosity. (laughs) I'm, I'm not a fan of it. It's cost our city a lot of money, but that's another segment. The fact that they hid this history, they knocked down the rest of the history. At least they kept the house, which I'm happy they did that. And one of the main reasons why is because of important person to Ontario history once lived there, definitely to Hamilton history, and that's Thomas Baker McQuestion. Now, Thomas uh, TB, you you know there's a bridge in the city named after him. There's a park on the mountain that's now named after him, TB McQuestion Park. He was big on the parks. He wrote up the original plans of the Royal Botanical Gardens. He was a roads minister of Ontario back in the day. His cars were invented, so he needed roads. He invented the QEW. He invented the Skyway Bridge. He invented the Rainbow Bridge going into the States. Very important person. For that reason, they kept the house. It is now a museum today, which I will highly recommend. And this is a side note for me, is that this is a unicorn in the museum industry. Absolutely love this place. Go visit it. I think your Hamilton library card, if you're from the city, will get you free admission. Because the stories they tell there are not about the type of stone the house is made from. They're not about how much the house cost back in the 1800s compared to today. They're not about the type of wood that is the structure of the house. They are family stories. And some of these stories could read as soap opera scripts. They're so interesting. So go visit this place just to see the beauty of it, but also to hear those amazing stories. Now, the the hauntings of the house are quite robust obviously they would have to be to be featured on a ghost walk and it's one of downtown hamilton which is our original and you know you can hear all of them on the tour but i'll just give you kind of an overview there's a woman that haunts it she's been heard singing they've heard a piano playing on the second floor a shadow has been seen on the stairwell and in the house itself uh, you know, disembodied legs have been seen inside the house. The energy of the house is felt by employees, especially when they're fixing it up. They say they feel really good in there, as if the spirits are still watching. And when they help the house out and protect the antiques, that they're saying thank you to that person for, you know, helping out. And many of the employees there love working inside of the building, 
just because of that feeling. And even though they're kind of in that same category as Dunder and Castle, where they discourage the idea of ghosts, it, it makes it even more amazing to know that the stories we have received over the years, you know, it can prove that a house is extremely haunted when people are actively trying to stop those stories, yet still they get out. So that makes me very happy. And it also makes me know that the stories that were shared with us have that level of danger behind it, which adds a little bit more validity. In my mind, it makes me think that these stories are even more real in the sense that it had a hard time getting out. So I'll, I'll keep that uh, brief because I want you to go visit it. I want you to experience it and, and hear the history for the first time when you go visit it. So just go ahead and look up White Hearn. Uh, white like the color. Hearn is H-E-R-N, mansion. And go there, go do the tour. And you can also come on the ghost walk if you want and stand in front of it. We'll tell you the ghost stories. Anyway, that's it for me this week. Uh, If anybody's interested, I'll be leading the downtown tour on Friday, June 24th. I will be leading the Dark History, uh, Dark Trolley tour of the harbor front on Saturday, the 25th. We got a few spots for the special late night tour that's happening that evening. That's it, everyone. Thanks for listening, and I'll talk to you next week.